Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the show Q with Tom Power. Uh, on the show, we talk to all kinds of uh, actors, writers, painters. I mean, big names you might have heard of. Like we had James L. Brooks talking about The Simpsons, Jada Pinkett Smith talking about Tupac. And on our show, artists go a little deeper than they might go elsewhere. I mean, the guys from Blue Rodeo kind of said that. We only talk about our relationship when we come on this show. <laughs> and we've done it damagingly and we've done it positively. <laughs> Listen to Q with Tom Power wherever you get your podcasts. Because art is something that you do, something that you make, something that stays with you for years, no matter what you become, no matter who tells you how you cannot win. Arts Educators Save the World, where successful artists and their mentors talk about how arts education transformed their lives. Hey! Welcome back. It's me, Erica, your superhero host, and my podcast sidekick, Alec Lev. Hi, Erica. Hi. Hi, I have a thought this week based on uh, this episode that we're about to dive into, and it's this. We both did theater in high school. We were theater majors in college, which means that you essentially live in the theater for four years. You're in, in rehearsals, in classrooms, in performance, and it definitely feels like there's a dividing line, and it might be felt by our listeners today, between theater types and other types. And I guess those others obviously break down. There's athlete science people, and obviously it all sort of interacts also. But listening to this interview where our guest's teacher talks all about the life lessons that you get from theater, it made me think that the dividing line isn't like those theater types are, oh, they're the artists, the dreamers, the, you know, the, the nut jobs, which is all true. But that in our classes, we're not just talking about theater. We are always talking about life. We're always talking about our lives. It gets really deep and really personal, who we are and who we want to be and how we fit into the larger world. And that made me think about your book and why it is that arts practices in particular are relevant to all classrooms and all disciplines and why listening to this, even if you're not a theater person, this is definitely for you. But fear not, theater nerd friends. For those <laughs> of us who consider ourselves musical theater nerd types, we will get a helping of that. All of the things that we love in this episode you already have heard the gorgeous voice of one of our guests, Broadway superstar Kate Baldwin. She and her former choreographer and dance teacher from high school, Craig Kinsley, who is himself a professional choreographer and worked with greats, including Rodgers and Hammerstein, talk about all the greatest hits. An interesting feature about today's episode we hear a lot about a mentor who is not in the room. Craig and Kate, while they have worked together and Kate talks about Craig as a mentor, they actually had a shared mentor, a woman by the name of Barbara Gensler, who you will hear a lot about throughout this episode, whose memory serves as the mentorship touchstone for both Kate and Craig. 
She was the high school theater teacher in a public high school in suburban Wisconsin. Craig was her choreographer and assistant for many of those years, and Kate was a student of them both. So make sure to silence your cell phones, unwrap all those candies, and it's time to get started. Onward together. Kate Baldwin. Oh, no. (laughs) You gotta let me get a word out. (laughs) Sorry, I'm so sorry. Kate Baldwin. I'm sorry. Is the dictionary definition of a Broadway professional. She's an actress and a singer. She's been nominated for her work in Finian's Rainbow and Hello, Dolly. She was magical. For Tony Awards. For Tony Awards. Um, (laughs) Let me say that again. She has been nominated for Tony Awards for her work in Finian's Rainbow and Hello, Dolly. She was magical in Big Fish, delightful in Thoroughly Modern Millie and Wonderful Town. Kate holds a BS in theater from a little place called Northwestern, where we spent our undergraduate years together. Kate has performed with the best musicians in the world. She sings with the New York Pops, the Boston Pops, the National Symphony, the Detroit Symphony, the Portland Symphony, the Phoenix Symphony, the Chicago Symphony. She's been part of the American Songbook Series at Lincoln Center, and she's performed at the Kennedy Center. While Alec, my producer, was researching Kate, among her many accomplishments, he found that she was nominated for the Kevin Klein Award which he decided to be one of the coolest named awards of all time (laughs) and seemed worth a mention. Kate, my beautiful friend, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thank you so much. I love a a Kevin Klein. In my house, we call them the Kleinies and because a lot of fun things rhyme with Kleiny. I want to talk to you about Craig Kinsley, however. Craig, is a lifelong teacher. He began his teaching career as a teenager. He was a musician growing up in Waukesha, Wisconsin. And as a teenager, was so proficient and skilled at his piano and organ, he started teaching others, even at that young age. He went through his secondary education there in Milwaukee, first at the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music, which is also where I went as a kid to join a chorus, the Wisconsin Conservatory Children's Chorus. And then he continued his studies at Carroll. When he graduated, he started doing musical theater and joined several groups in the Milwaukee area, the Waukesha and Milwaukee area. And through his work doing theater, met up with my late high school teacher, Barbara Gensler. Barbara Gensler was a force. She was the drama teacher at Shorewood High School, which was a fabulous public high school in tiny Shorewood, Wisconsin. And she taught there since 1965, Craig, I think it was. And then she retired probably in um, 2012. 2012. That was the end of it. So she affected countless students with her fire and her knowledge and her belief in us. And Craig was her right-hand man. He started choreographing shows at our high school in 1982 and proceeded for the next 30 years to choreograph the musical every spring. And I was a lucky participant in three of those shows. Unfortunately, Gensler went on sabbatical my sophomore year. I'll never forgive her. (laughs) And so we only got to do three musicals together, but they were formative for me and instilled in me a love of learning, a burst of joy. Every time I hear, you know, a dance number come on, I think of Craig (laughs) uh, because he was the one who told us that we could do it. And he is truly 
one of the best teachers I've ever met because he thinks everybody can dance. And I think he's right. That's Craig. <laughs> Craig, welcome. Oh, thank you for that. That's, thank you so much for, <laughs> you. for joining us. I would love to start by having each of you tell us, tell each other about the first time you remember working together. Tell us a story about the first time that you worked together. I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We were doing Greece. I can't remember what year it was. Kate, you probably... My freshman year. So it was 1990. 1990. So we were doing Greece. Mm-hmm. Barbara always wanted to get a lot of kids involved. And the cast in Greece, is, it's a small cast, I think like 15 people or something like that. And so she decided to add a small chorus of folks. Kate was one of the chorus girls. And I remember her... <laughs> I remember Gensler told me, you've got to see this girl. She's just incredible. She knew back then, Kate, already in your freshman year. Mm. And she said, this girl is going to go places. And I still see Kate with, I remember she had this long red ponytail. And I just so admire that. I just love that. And she sat on the steps and she did the hand drive and some other things. And yeah, that was my first impression of her. (laughs) I was the only freshman girl who was allowed to be in the show because we were doing Grease, right, in the high school. And that's such a popular title. So, so many people, I think Gensler had this idea, I call her Gensler, you call her Barb, <laughs> had this idea that she would get a lot of interest and she'd see who else was out there because Grease is cool, right? Like you get to be a T-bird, you get to be a pink lady, you know, <laughs> little did we know in high school that when Grease was actually written, the T-birds and the pink ladies were kind of the outsiders. And it was sort of meant as a send-up when the writers wrote it in the 70s. I know that now because I went to Northwestern, <laughs> but at the time... It was highly competitive, or at least it felt that way, Craig. Maybe it wasn't, but it felt highly competitive for all of us who were hopeful to be included. And I remember I was the only freshman girl who was selected because there were so many girls who auditioned, and I was so proud and so happy to just even be there. And I remember they seemed like endless dance rehearsals where we'd do the hand jive over (laughs) and over and over again. And we would get done with it, and we'd be dripping with sweat, and Craig would say, let's do it again. And I'd go, yes. And I was thrilled to do it. And I just loved watching all of the seniors who I idolized, of course, do what I thought was incredible work. And it was, it was remarkable to me. It was magical that they could be, you know, people during the day and then transform into these other people once they hit the stage. And that Mrs. Gensler was the person who was the portal for them to become something else. When I think about theater and I think about high school, I think about how we form our identities. And I think about that time in your life as being so important because you're trying to figure out who you are what is important to you in the world, what you stand for, who you want in to be around, how you feel like yourself. And in that studio, doing the hand jive, I said, this is me. This is what I love to do. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. You mentioned about you looking up to the seniors at that point. And I remember that's exactly what would happen. All the freshmen and sophomores, they'd look at the seniors and see the professionalism there and everything. And they it really helped them strive for that as well. And I remember... When we were doing Evita, which was your senior year, one of the students, I don't know, I guess it was after you had left. Anyway, he was a freshman in Evita. And then in his senior year, we were talking at a rehearsal and just talking about waiting for stuff to happen. He said, you know, 
in my freshman year when we did a Vita and you made us do it over and over and over, I just I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he would get so upset. He said he got so upset because we had to do it over. And he's in his senior year at that point, he said, I understand why now. I see the importance of that and how it <laughs> built my confidence in working with it. So, yeah. <laughs> I love also the idea that that rehearsal space is the place where you learn that a draft of something isn't the thing, right? When younger artists make art, and I've been involved in children's theater, like as a performer, so performing alongside young children, they do it once. And because in school, you do something once, and then it's done, it's over, right? The thing is the making of the thing. And the beauty of what I hear you two saying is even though what it looks like is doing the hand jive over and over again, what it's actually teaching you is the practicing is part of making the thing that you don't just say, well, okay, that's done. We did it. And the multi-generationalness of what you're saying, right? That maybe you come into that thinking we do it once and it's done, but then you watch the more expert others take that process in as part of their learning. And then they come to love that, even if it's a pain in the neck to do the hand drive 8 million times and have, you know, your adult mentor be like, again. <laughs> yeah, that was a big philosophy there with Barb. It wasn't so much about doing the shows, but it was about teaching the students life lessons, you know, a commitment coming in and you commit yourself to these rehearsals and you're there on time and you work as a team, you know, you work to the best of your ability. That's what that program taught a lot of those students and it helped them build confidence and a self-worth. I remember when I did Barnum there, Tom Thumb is the little general Tom Thumb in there, you know, and this young kid was playing it and he I don't remember, he, he was just so withdrawn and everything. And I worked with him and worked with him and worked with him. And several years later, after he had graduated, his mother had come down to the costume shop and I had stopped in there to talk to the costumer for whatever we were doing. And his mother said to me, you know what, my son, when you said, and I forget what she, she told me what I said to him. She said, when you said this to him, that made such an impression on him and he felt like it changed his life. And I had no recollection of having said that, but what it did was it made me realize what an impact I can have on students in, in that position. It's kind of life-changing for me <laughs> in a way. Mm, yeah, because we were all sponges. We were all hanging on every word. I was telling Craig yesterday too, when he would come and choreograph the shows, he was coming from New York City. And even though he was from Milwaukee originally, he had moved to New York a couple of years prior to when I first met you. And he would come in <laughs> on his rollerblades. Yes. And he would eat macrobiotic, <laughs> uh, healthy food. And those of us who, you know, never ever considered that mode of transport or that kind of diet were like, what? You might as well have been an alien from Mars. We had no idea what to do with ourselves. We're like, oh, that's cool. That is really cool. And it makes you think about the world outside your own little world. And you know how a high school environment can be so insular and so stifling. And what I loved about you is you're coming from the outside and you're saying, hey, there's another world out there. And also the work that you and Barb did with us was to make us get out of our own way get out of our own heads and imagine something bigger than ourselves that wasn't about 
how we felt our point of view on the world. It was about someone else's point of view. And it was about creating a world that we could all agree on, a world that we could all believe in and play with. And that was utter intoxication for me. And of course, that's why I became an actor. That power of imagination that you introduced just by being who you are, Mm. and then also by doing the work that you did. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. What inspired you, Craig, to become an educator? You had a a life and a career as a professional practicing artist. Why become an educator? I think I always was. Mm. As Kate said, I started studying piano and organ when I was eight or nine years old. When I was 15, the music center in Waukesha said, hey, we want you to teach. And I was like, oh, Okay. And so I just started teaching. My parents had to drive me there. I couldn't even drive to the place where I was going to teach, right? (laughs) And I don't know, it's something that's always been in me. Teaching music, teaching piano, teaching organ, teaching dance. I directed shows, choreographed shows. It's just something that's innate in me in some way. And it's always been there. I'm not doing theater anymore. I'm now a massage therapist and I teach Mm. massage therapy. And I feel I do the same sorts of things teaching massage therapy. You know, when students say, oh, I can't do it. It's like, yes, you can. We've just got to figure out a way to do it. I don't know. I guess I've just always been a teacher. Mm. I was born that way. Yeah, you were. Was there ever a moment when Barb asked you to come and do the musical that year and you said, I'm too busy or I'm not able to, or you thought about maybe I won't do it with her? And did you have to make a choice to then choose it again? No, only one time when she did The Wiz, I was working at a theater down in Indiana at the same time and couldn't do it. But no, I mean, I just loved her philosophy of working and teaching kids. I was so inspired to do that. Actually... (laughs) When we did Evita, I'd worked for Rogers and Hammerstein for a number of years, part-time, and eventually it became a full-time job because I would come back, stay for like six weeks and do the show and then come back to New York. And when this became a full-time position, I said to her, I can't come back. I'm sorry. She said, okay. But you're not supposed to say you can't. You're not supposed to say can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> you're right. However, after I hung up, I started thinking about it and I thought, wait, there has to be a way to do this. <laughs> so a few days later, I called her back and I said, what if I just came in on weekends, come in on Friday night, rehearse all day Saturday, all day Sunday? And she said, sure. So that's what we ended up doing. So then for years... I would fly in on Friday nights. Barb and I would talk about rehearsal on Saturday. We'd get in on Saturday morning, rehearse from 10 to 6. On Sunday mornings, like about 10, I'd pull in small groups or, uh, you know, a duo or whatever, work with them. And 1 o'clock, the full company would come in. We'd work until 6 o'clock and leave right from there. And I'd get to the airport, catch the 7 o'clock flight back to New York. Did that for years. And, And we didn't do big dance shows at that time. It was more staging shows. And then... After we had it down to a science, I said to her, you know, we need a challenge. I, I need a challenge. You need a challenge. Let's do West Side Story. <laughs> and she said, okay. And so I said, we need a full-time pianist. I need an assistant who will be there to work with the students during the week. And we did it. We came in every week and there's like five big ballets in that show, right? And so I'd choreograph a whole ballet one weekend and then come in the next weekend, watch what they did and choreograph another one. And It was quite a success. So, yeah, so you're right. I said I can't, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love it. I need Mm. to talk about this public high school where kids agreed (laughs) to come and work on the school musical on their own time every weekend for six weeks. What is your impression, Kate and Craig, of how that culture got built? Mm. There's often the impression with arts education that, oh, that's all fine and good for blah, blah school because they have the resources they have. But there's a cultural aspect to that that it just occurs to me that it would be interesting to hear. How did it come to be that a group of high schoolers year after year would show up at a school for 20 hours every weekend to make something together? I think it was Gensler. It was her. Yeah, it It was was all her doing. All right, here we are at the nutty goodness center of our show. What's going to happen here in the conversation is Kate and Craig really start talking a lot about Barbara Gensler and the kind of educator that she was. And we thought it would make sense to put Barbara at the center of the conversation right now. So here's how we're going to do that. We're going to share with you a clip from Kate's new television special, Broadway Comes Home which is the hopefully beginning of a series where successful Broadway performers go back to their hometowns to talk with the educators who shaped their lives and the young people who are also doing and making theater art in their town. We're going to share a clip with you where Kate describes the influence that Barbara has had on her life during a live cabaret performance that she put on in her hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Tonight is a way for me to say thank you to the people who started me on my artistic journey and helped me build not just a career, but a life. Ever since I was a kid, I had this dream of becoming a professional actor. But growing up here, I didn't always see a clear path to that becoming a reality. I didn't have any fancy connections. I didn't have any reason to believe that I'd belong in that world. But I did have a Barbara Gensler. She was our teacher at Sherwood High School, and she was a spitfire, and let's face it, she ran the school. If you were a new principal, you had to go talk to Gensler. If there was a pressing issue brought up at the school board, Gensler certainly had an opinion. And if you wanted to be in the school play, you better go before Gensler and get schooled. She set the bar for us really high and expected us to meet it. She demanded our partnership in artistry. She taught us to know what we wanted. She taught us to stand still and tell the truth. If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. She was this incredible dynamo. She just loved working with students and she felt kids could do anything. And she built the tradition of years of doing this. And it was just a tradition. Yeah, the tradition was in place by the time you got there, right? So she'd been doing it for sort of almost 20 years by the time you guys started working together. Our school 
was a rather small high school. My graduating class was like 153 people. The total number of students in the school is about 500. We were a small public school just north of Milwaukee with a wonderful facility. We had this incredible Art Deco auditorium that was proscenium that had a red velvet curtain that had an orchestra pit. Did you know that the auditorium was designed on Radio City Music Hall? That makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. It was a magical place. And yeah, anything could happen. Erica, we would do five shows a year, my freshman year. It was a play in the fall, a variety show in the winter that was tied to the AFS fundraising initiative. There was a children's show that we toured around to elementary schools. And there was a spring musical. There was maybe another comedy we did. Were you there when she turned the rehearsal space into a studio theater also? That was after my time. Yeah. Was, I was insanely jealous that you guys got to do that. We had this rehearsal studio, you know, with mirrors and everything. And this was all Barb. She wanted a black box studio. She raised the funds and everything. So there were curtains she pulled around. You could set up a stage wherever, the audience, wherever you wanted to. Yeah, and so then she'd do a show in there. Wow. We had a superintendent who understood how special she was and how important what she was doing was. And so he helped her. He funded. He drove uh, interest and money her way. She also had an incredible network of parents who also saw what she was doing and uh, helped more so than any other program at that school, I don't want to knock anything, but we had the attention and the support from the community in a way that people knew about Shorewood High School and they knew that the plays and musicals that we put on were something special. And therefore, we felt like we were special. We felt like we were delivering something or experiencing something that was one of a kind, that was important, that was tied to our community. Everybody came to see the musical. It was the cool thing to do. I don't know why, but it was cool. Like I even told Craig, he gave me a DVD yesterday of a production of the Pirates of Penzance that he did. But I remember being 10 years old and watching that Pirates of Penzance and taking my entire fourth grade birthday party to sit in the balcony to watch the high school show and dressing up and thinking of it as like the greatest thing ever. I had the program. I memorized everyone's name in it. I treated them like movie stars, like gods. They were so important to me. And sitting in that space and hearing that music and not knowing anything about it, but getting in there and experiencing it was part of the hook for me and thinking, gee, one day I can do that Mm. too. Yeah, it it was a tradition she had built. She was just this incredible woman. She would always challenge you. Also, I remember first time I did Chorus Line there, there was the rehearsal number where they're rehearsing the one singular sensation, tip the hat, tip the hat, left foot, kick, touch, blah, blah, blah. And I had gotten the whole thing staged and everything. And I called her and I said, come watch this. And she watched it. After it was over, she said to me, you know, they're saying tip the hat, but they're not tipping the hat. And she walked out. Oh, no! (laughs) She never said, change it, fix it. And of course, I had to fix it (laughs) and figure out how to make it work. But that's what she would do. She would even challenge herself. She challenged herself. She challenged everyone around her. She would empower you. She would empower you with how she believed in you. She wouldn't instruct you and say, do it like this or like I'm going to spoon feed it to you. She'd say, you can do it. You'll figure it out. I believe in you go. Mm -hmm. And for being a 16 or 17-year-old or 18-year-old kid, you you think to yourself, but I don't know anything. I I know nothing. 
Alternatively, I know everything because I'm 16. <laughs> but to have somebody who, you know, is such a, a dynamo and such a force look at you and say, you got this, you know what you're doing, you don't need me, go, was a huge developmental step. Mm. It was hugely empowering. It was identity forming. It was everything you want to hear when you're that age. That's what I want to hear now. <laughs> <laughs> to that point, Erica's book is about how the skills of the artist and the teaching artist stick with students and stick with people throughout their lives outside of the world of art as well. That these are tools, these are skills that any teacher can make use of for any students. Mm. We all had arts education, then we grew up and we became artists. But I know that I think of things that my directing teacher told me in theater class, and yes, I use it when I'm directing, but it also is a part of my life outside of that. And I'm wondering, Kate, can you talk about what Barbara, what Craig gave you that you don't just use in the theater, but that has become a part of who you are more generally? Oh, I love that. One of the philosophies, one of the tenets that they had was that we're all in this together. We're making something mm. together. Nobody's out there by themselves. That's important. It's also important to listen, to listen more than you talk. Here I am on a podcast, talking and talking and talking. You can't talk without listening. She would always say, tell the truth. Her main focus was about truth telling. Stand still, tell the truth. That's a big one for life, mm. isn't it? We should all stand still and tell the truth <laughs> as much as we humanly can. Mm. And also know what you want. You can't step on stage without knowing what you want. Also think about that idea when you're a teenager and everybody's telling you who you are and you're worried about college and you're worried about your parents and you're worried about your boyfriend, your girlfriend, all your stuff that you're doing. To sit back and think, well, what do I want? Nobody asks me what I want. Here's a person who's asking me to at least think about what the character wants. I think if more people in their life could identify, could really pinpoint what they want, they might change their lives completely. Mm. Craig, you're very good at listening to your own self, listening to what you want in your own life. You are a person who has followed your own unique path in this world in a way that is open and free of preconceived notions. It seems to me from this outsider perspective, knowing you the way I do, that you tune in with yourself and you figure out what the next step is, what you want, and then you go for it. And that's an incredible way to live. I wonder how you figured that out. Just thinking about it now, I think it, I was actually doing a production of Pippin. This was back in Waukesha, Wisconsin. <laughs> and, Erica and I did it in college. <laughs> and I was directing and choreographing it. And I was doing the sex scene, whatever that is, where they're all with Pippin. The orgy. The orgy yeah. scene, yes. And mm -hmm. I had stuff planned out and I was doing it and it wasn't working. And, and I was like, let me try this. And I saw something in my mind and it was like, Oh, that's never going to work. I'm never going to, I'm not going to do that. And I tried something else and tried. I worked with the cast for like an hour and nothing was happening. And I was just getting frustrated. And I said, okay, I saw this thing. I'm going to try it. I know it's not going to work, but I'll try it. And I did. And within 20 minutes, I had the whole number staged. That was the moment when I thought something inside of me, if I listened to that voice inside of me that told me that that was the way to go, even if it doesn't make sense logically, to follow that, it's going to take me somewhere. And that's sort of what I've followed through my life. 
Well, you're talking about trusting yourself. You're talking about trusting your own instincts and your own abilities, even if the ability is sort of a mystery to you in the moment Mm -hmm. and going with it. I just finished a show. We just did Bridges of Madison County. It was directed by a friend of mine, Hunter Foster, who's also a peer. And he would say, let's do the bad idea and hope that it'll get us to the good idea. I think that's one of the tenets of arts education too. Like, don't be afraid of the bad idea. The bad idea is going to lead you to a good idea. Mm -hmm. If you've staged it, and you hate it, and you just it's not working, that's part of the process. It's part of what leads you to the idea that finally makes sense or works or lifts off the ground or tells the story in a new way. Yeah, you know, and, you know sometimes I would stage things, and it, I knew that that piece right there wasn't working, and I would just let it go, and, and eventually something would come, and it's like, oh, wait, okay, now let's put this new piece in. So I know exactly what you're talking about with that, yeah. I was just going to throw my nerdy words in about that. When I think about teaching, any kind of teaching, arts or otherwise, the biggest idea that I want to communicate to people is that the single job of the teacher is to scaffold people into being willing to take risks. The ability to take risks Mm -hmm. is the space where everyone learns stuff. The challenge of teaching is that you can't just say, okay, take a risk now and expect people to do it, you have to create the conditions for risk-taking to happen. And then before you know it, people are doing the work that lets them take risks, that lets them be wrong, that lets them be right. And so I love, Craig and Kate, what you're saying, which to me is, is such a lovely example of how you scaffold people into risk-taking without saying, okay, we're doing something risky now. Instead, you just say, well, let's do the wrong thing (laughs) and let's do the wrong thing. And that will lead us to the right thing. And you sort of Mm -hmm. get the risk taking in through that path. That is a really fabulous example of how scaffolding risk taking looks in practice. Mm, Absolutely. And I think it looks different in different stages of your life. As Mm -hmm. a person who has been doing plays and musicals since she was 14 and is now almost 47, I've been doing this a long time. So when you're young, that kind of risk-taking feels perilous, feels like, oh no, everybody's going to see my soft, mushy, unsure insides if I go too far. And I will expose myself and everyone will know my deepest, darkest secrets, or they'll know that I'm not as smart as I think I am, or I'm not as cool as I want to be, or any of that stuff. As an adult, recently, I've figured out that that risk-taking place is the place to live because oftentimes the happy accident will happen or the funny thing, the thing that you couldn't imagine for yourself as, I want to plan this joke. I've done a lot of comedies and I love doing comedy. And I marvel at the architecture and the structure of jokes, but I often feel like the happenstance of putting yourself out there and making what you think is the best, bold, terrible choice will lead to something that's funny. And then that will get you to, to where you want to go. But I, I love how it evolves over time. That as a young person, it feels like danger, perilous. And, but as a person who's done this for a long time, I now look for those moments because I know that's where the funny part comes in. And you're able to do it independently because you have educators who scaffold it for you so that now you can scaffold it for yourself. That's right. That's right. You know, I was never afraid either to say that I'm not sure what needs to happen here to show the students that it's okay to take that risk. I would just say, okay, let's just kind of do this for now. And so I think that was another 
way of helping them realize it's okay to feel this sort of nebulous place and play in that space, and then something will come eventually. My favorite artist leaders, directors, artistic directors that I've worked with are the people who are willing to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but let's find out together. And I think to myself, if the corporate world, what little I know of it, I don't really know many people <laughs> in the corporate world, let's be honest. <laughs> but if they could have that sense of vulnerability, first of all, is a huge word, and collaboration that leads them to a better answer or along a path that helps guide in a kinder, more collaborative way, I'm so much more interested in that kind of existence than anything else, than any way of like, it's my way or the highway, I know what's right, you don't. That never quite works out, does it, in problem solving? And it doesn't work in schools either. <laughs> this concept, I love, Craig, what you said about modeling for students. Well, I'm not really sure, but let's work it out together. What if that was how school worked too? Mm. What if part of the process of being in community in a classroom was a teacher saying, well, I know what the problem space is, and that's what makes me the teacher, but I don't know what the answer is. And that's our work together, is figuring out what the answer or the answers are. For me, being an educator, it's, it's not about me. And I feel so many educators feel it's about them. They're the teacher mm. and this is how it has to go. And I've never felt that. I remember years ago, I looked up the word educate. And it doesn't mean to pour something into someone. It means to lead it out of them. The, the mm. etymology is coming mm. from Latin word, to lead out or to bring forth from someone. That's what I always felt was more important than being about me. But it is about leading out of the student, what they have to offer. You talked yesterday when we spoke a little briefly about looking at the group you had and determining what they were capable of and maybe setting the bar just a little bit higher and leading them towards going for something that maybe they didn't even know that they could do. I always would aim for a little bit higher than the middle of the bell curve so that these folks down here would be challenged, but these folks at the top would not be bored with everything. Working to and seeing how I could bring those from the bottom up and encouraging the students to work with each other, to build that camaraderie, helping each other. I don't know. And then once I, would, I could see them start, I would raise the bar a little bit higher, you know, and just keep going until mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, that's their limit. And sometimes it went pretty far and sometimes not so far, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but you have to be in tune enough with the group to perceive that. Yeah. And I, somehow I was able to, I've always been aware of where everyone's sort of at. I don't know. It's just sort of an instinctual mm -hmm. thing within me that I know. Yeah. That's awesome. Famous Russian developmental psychologist Vygotsky called that working with people in their zone of proximal development, which is collaborating with them to achieve something just beyond what they could do on their own. And that good teaching and learning is about engaging with people right in that space. So Craig, you would be like a Vygotskyan <laughs> is that something you can teach a teacher to know, or is it sort of instinctual? That's a great question. I mean, in teacher school, we certainly teach teachers about those ideas <laughs> as a way to 
help them think about their own practice. There are folks who, as you say, know to do that just as who they are as human beings. I think there are folks who can learn to do that, particularly if they come into teacher school thinking that teaching is about telling. And then you say, well, yes, telling is part of it, but working with humans in their zone of proximal development is another really important thing that you need to be doing. So I think you can, but I also think One of the reasons that I want to get your stories out in the world is that I think artists know and do this as part of being artists, and it's why arts educators make such compelling teachers. Kate, I think it's a lovely opportunity to do a little full circle moment here, and I was wondering if you feel comfortable talking a little about Broadway Comes Home. You know, you have taken so many of these ideas now into your life and thought about ways to reshare back. So I'd love for you to talk a little about the Broadway Comes Home idea and what you've been doing. Mm. So the pandemic happened. Uh, Perhaps it hasn't, uh, maybe I shouldn't speak of it in the uh, post-pandemic and in the past tense is what I was looking for because it's still ongoing. It made me consider a lot of things. Made me consider how we treat performance and what we require of an audience. And because performing on stage was illegal for two years, doing what I do, what I've been trained to do, what I've been doing for 25 years professionally, was no longer allowed. So I had to think about adapting. It became a digital process. It became an online Zoom confusing and distancing time. But I tried to turn that disappointment and that frustration into something that I could use and move forward with. And so then I got this idea that theater, performance, live performance, should not be the exclusive thing that it's always been, right? You buy a ticket, you go into a theater, you sit down, you have this ephemeral experience where the play is in front of you or the musical is in front of you and then it's gone. And you've paid X amount of dollars to have that catharsis. There's no substitute for that. I still love that experience so much. However, there are people who cannot come to see Hello, Dolly! starring Bette Midler for a whole host of reasons, right? And why should they be denied that catharsis or some version of that story? I got to thinking about inclusion, and how we can include more people, more audiences in just my story. That's where I have to start. What I know best, and gosh, it's me. I'm so sorry <laughs> for, from our parents <laughs> because they've heard it. They don't need to hear it again. <laughs> However, I thought about how theater exists all over this world. Broadway isn't the only place. I have worked in so many regional theaters and all of them reached out to me during the pandemic. Will you sing a song? Will you tell a story? Will you meet with some donors? Will you host a Zoom chat room? Will you give us some CDs to sell so that our donors and our supporters feel included? They're all trying to figure out how to hang on to their audiences, hang on to the people who support their not-for-profit endeavors. Now, in case people are listening and they don't understand that Broadway is a commercial enterprise, but most of these places that I'm talking about, Arena Stage, the Old Globe, Huntington Theater in Boston, all these places that I've worked that were what I call my graduate school, my graduate training programs, where I got to play lead roles in musicals and plays throughout my 20s and early 30s before I landed a lead role on Broadway. 
these places serve their communities. They are invested in their donor base, their supporter base, and they are part of the fabric of each of those cities that I just named. And that's important. And it, I think it's important then to shine a light on people doing that kind of work, that kind of art making all over the place. And what better place to start with than Milwaukee and my hometown that fostered my imagination at a young age, that taught me how to think like an artist. So I went back to the Skylight Music Theater, which is where I went when I was a child and I needed to see musicals, wanting to see musicals. They were the place in town that did them. I decided to put on a concert evening. We shot it in September. I did about 12 songs. I had a small invited audience, all wearing masks, all abiding by COVID protocols because we were still in the thick of things that back then. I hired a production company to shoot the concert. And then I came back a month later to Shorewood and I taught a class at Shorewood High School and I spoke with my old dance teacher, Pam Krieger, who Craig knows. <laughs> I talked with the man who now runs the Shorewood High School drama program, Adam Schaefer, who was a freshman when I was a senior. Oh, I stood in front of the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music where I was an early music student. I stood in front of my elementary school and I talked about the teachers who affected my life and talked about what it's like to grow up in an, a great American city with a great American arts tradition and think of yourself as an artist and come back to your roots and pay homage to the people who helped you form that identity. Because that, for me, is what it was all about. I would love to be able to be a person who then turns it around and asks colleagues of mine for their personal stories, their hometown of Miami, their hometown of Denver, other places that maybe we don't consider as arts hubs or places that enriched or produced or nurtured young artists and reveal them as just that and have a person who has garnered some success in this Broadway business come home, do the same thing, teach a class, reconnect with teachers and celebrate the place that I came from and call it a series called Broadway Comes Home. That's my dream. Well, if that did not warm your cold, cold musical theater heart, I don't know what possibly could. My heart and my brain are so full with the ways in which being in the theater, being on the stage, and being the member of a theater community can make us better human beings. And yet I'm still as awful as I am. Would you like to ask me anything uh, today, Erica? Oh, well, with your cold, cold heart, <laughs> I have a question for you. Name me three musicals that have not yet been made that you would like to see made. Uh, number one is uh, King Kong in the Sandbox. One. The second one that should be coming uh, anytime soon is Quentin Tarantino on Ice. Two. It's a site-specific show. <laughs> and then number three is uh, Tote Bag. The musical, it's very popular here at, uh, in California farmer's markets. Three things. Ooh, that, is, uh, that is stressful. Uh, now I get the easy part. Erica, let's say there's people who are enjoying our show and they just want to commune, communicate, and, and connect with us. What are three ways they could do that? That's great. We would love to hear from you. If you have questions, comments, or if you know someone who would make a great guest on our show, please write to us at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. One. If you yourself have a mentor who you've been hoping to talk to about the impact that they've made on your life, use our handy-dandy interview guide to talk to them about the ways your life and theirs have been changed through the arts. 
That's at artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Two. And when you complete that amazing interview with your mentor, send us your favorite two-minute clip of your interview, and we will do our best to include it on the show. To learn more, you can go to our website at artseducatorspodcast.com. Three things. Onward together. Arts Educators Save the World is hosted by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and produced and co-hosted by me, Alec Lev. Our executive producer is Doug Matica, and our audio producer is Justin Asher. We are also executive produced by the fantastic group at Story Pirate Studios, Lee Overtree, Benjamin Salka, and Amy Fiore. Original music is by Dan Lipton, and our artwork is by Lyra Evans. Check out our website, designed by Cole Locasio, at www.artseducatorspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Arts Educators. Yes, somehow that wasn't taken yet. And on Instagram at Arts Educators Podcast. Write to us with your questions and comments at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. And wherever you're listening, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps the show. We are proud to be sponsored in part by the Wallace Foundation, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the Gibb Faculty Fellowship. Arts Educators Save the World was created by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and Alec Lev. If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.